I was impressed last week as we had uh, Bernie Haddad here with us to speak. She had been praying. We had met a month in advance of her coming to speak, and she'd begun praying what the Lord would lead her to speak. And I had this week between Thanksgiving and Advent started. I knew what I was doing for Advent, but I have this one Sunday that I don't have a series for, this one Sunday that I needed to say something. And um, God had kind of given me direction, and she was praying, and God gave her direction. She spoke last week on forgiveness, and you all responded so well to that at the altar by coming and laying down papers of the Lord leading you to forgive. The Lord had been speaking to me about talking about reconciliation. And so I feel like there's something here that God's wanting to say to us as a body. So reconciliation is what we're talking about today, and that's one of those deeply pastoral kinds of words. Back in Genesis, we see that God made everything good, and he made Adam and Eve, our first parents, and they were good, and God's intention was that they would live in love and harmony and unity and affection and mutual trust and support and encouragement, and that their intimacy would be between one another and between God and them. And that was God's plan or God's intention, but we all know what happened next. Through our first parents, Adam and Eve, we sinned against God. And when they sinned against God, the effects of sin were immediately visible. Adam and Eve hid from God. All of a sudden, they don't have that intimacy with God any longer. They are separated from God. They're not close to him anymore. They're far away from him, and they're afraid of him, no longer trusting him. You see, here's the reality. Sin comes between people and God. It separates us from God. Sin comes between people and people, and it separates us from one another. This isn't in your notes, but if you've got your bulletins, pull it out and write this this sentence down right here. Not reconciliation. Here we go. Sin is the destroyer of relationship. Sin destroys relationship. Sin destroys the relationship that you have between yourself and God. It puts a void there between you. And sin separates us from one another. When you're separated from someone or separated from God, that makes life very difficult. You live with regret and remorse and a sense of loss and an emptiness and a discouragement and despair. And there's something in the human condition where we want to get back into alignment with the image and likeness of God. We want relationship to be restored. We know when relationship is broken, and we want it to be restored, particularly with the people we love the most. When we use that word reconciliation, we're using a very important theological word. It means a lot in the Bible to use the word reconciliation. It means that people are coming together across a divide of sin, trying to be close once again. Jesus tells us, for example, to forgive our enemies to love those who do us evil and pray for those who persecute us. These are all principles of reconciliation. And the Apostle Paul, throughout the New Testament, repeatedly encouraged people to go about being reconciled. For example, in the Philippians, in the book of Philippians, the Philippine church, they're Philippines. What am I talking about? The church of Philippi. Goodness, I get it all confused. Philippines, they're not even close to what I'm talking about. The church in Philippi, there are these two women who are fighting with one another. And Paul tells them, seek reconciliation. Try to forgive one another. Set an example in that. In Romans chapter 12, verse 18, Paul again says, if it is possible, 
as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. What he's saying is this. There is a person and there's another person. And between them is this void, this sin that has separated them. And if we are Christians, our mission should be to extend over this void of sin. Our mission should be to reach across what divides us, to extend a hand of love and forgiveness and repentance, whatever is required. And we should do everything that we possibly can as far as it depends on us to live in peaceful existence and reconciliation with one another. And we kind of have this false idea in the church that the church is all, you know, wonderful and love and it's like hippies in a field of flowers and love man and peace and it's wonderful. It's all good, man. But no, this is real life here. And even in the church, we upset one another. Even in the church, there can be voids which can separate us where we have to deal with that with one another. We have to seek reconciliation. There's a formula of reconciliation. It's a super easy math formula, and I think you can memorize it. It's in your bulletins today. I want you to fill in the blanks, okay? Here it is. I think you all can remember this. This is the formula. One plus one equals two. One plus one equals two. That's all you need to know about being reconciled. One plus one equals two. And here's how we break it down. It takes one person to repent. It takes one person to repent. It takes one person to forgive, which equals two people being reconciled. One to repent, one to forgive, two to be reconciled. The reality in Paul's statement, do everything you can to live at peace, make every effort that you can, implies a reality in this statement. This math equation may not always work. Because how many people does it take to repent? Let's see what you learned. Okay, how many people does it take to forgive? How many people does it take for reconciliation to happen? Two. So here's the deal. If you've wronged me, I can forgive you while you've never repented of change and sought change. If you've wronged me, I can, repent, I, I can forgive you and say, you know what? You wronged me, but I choose to forgive. But if you don't repent, are we reconciled? No, the math doesn't work. On the flip side, I may have wronged you. And the Lord may speak to my heart and say, you wronged your brother or sister, go and repent. And I go and I say, I am sorry, I have wronged you, but you don't forgive. Are we reconciled? No. It takes one to repent, one to forgive, and two to be reconciled. And here's the thing. Sometimes we think if we just sweep this, these issues, these sins that divide us under the rug, something is going to happen and... And, and it'll all get better. But that's not usually how it works. When we sweep the divides uh, between us under the rug, what begins to happen is they take root. The Bible tells us this. These sins begin to take root in our life, and they, just like a big carrot or dandelion, I mean, it's all bigger underneath the soil, right? They begin to grow and, and fester, and they grow into something called bitterness. There's this statement that we use 
that time heals all wounds. The problem with saying this is that we're often saying, well, we'll just choose to ignore this situation and it'll all get better with time. But very often, perhaps more often than not, when we sweep a hurt or a sin under the rug, it begins to turn bitter. In Hebrews chapter 12, we read, watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. When you sweep sin under the rug, whether you are needing to forgive, but you just choose to ignore it, or you are needing to repent, but you choose to ignore it, what you are doing is you are allowing a root of bitterness to take hold in your life. And the problem with that is it doesn't just mess you up, it messes others up too. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. Have you ever noticed this? You can be working and you could have a bitter coworker who's upset about something that happened at work. And that one person's bitterness can change the climate of the workplace to the point where bitterness takes over and it becomes a poisonous atmosphere. Who's seen that or been a part of something like that before? You can see it with families. You take one bitter family member, we just celebrated Thanksgiving, Ashley, me, and Deborah. We got to be by ourselves. No family. It was, it was a really relaxing and wonderful time. Some of you, you may have a family member in your life who's bitter. I love my family. I should go back and say that. They're all wonderful, and even my, and my in-laws are great, and everybody, my, it's all good. <laughs> I don't want to, they, they may be listening to this later on, so I want to just take that one. But one bitter family member can destroy the holidays. One bitter family member can disrupt unity, love, and harmony inside a family. And it just blows up. You may have had that this past week, where things, you just, oh, it was yuck. You can see it with a group of young people. You can take a group of young people who are really good kids, and you drop in the middle of this great group of kids, one bitter, angry, rebellious person, and all of a sudden, the whole group starts trending in the wrong direction. Why? Because the bitter root doesn't just impact you. When you sweep sin under the rug, you are not just impacting your heart. You're impacting the hearts of people and community around you. So watch out, the Word tells us, that it doesn't come into your life and poison you. Today I want to look at an incredible story of reconciliation. If you've got your Bibles, this is found in Genesis chapter 33. But this, this story, I have to set it up for you. We could go for weeks, nay, months, nay, years, on the life of this guy named Jacob in Genesis. It, I love the Old Testament and what it teaches us about Jesus. We're going to look at the life of Jacob and the story of reconciliation, but before we can do that, I want to set the foundation for you of why this story should make you gasp. You see, we're desensitized to our Bibles. We've heard them a little bit, and so we're not shocked and surprised. I had the great privilege of getting to teach a group of children over the course of many weeks the story of Genesis, and we spent a long time with the story of Jacob. And when we got to Genesis chapter 33, and I said what happened as I was relating the story, I kid you not, the kids had heard it for the first time, and they all went, 
<gasps> Are you kidding me? <laughs> it can't be this way. So let me set it up for you. We're in a patriarchal society, and there's this guy named Abraham who's called by God to leave his country. You might know the story of Abraham, but he journeys not knowing where he's going to end up, and is kind of this nomadic guy. Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac is the promised child, the child that Abraham in his late 90s just didn't ever think would come, and yet the Lord gave him Isaac. Isaac had these two boys, Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau are twins, not identical twins, but both born at the same time. Esau was the firstborn, the first one out. And when he comes out of the mother's womb, of his mother's womb, he's covered in red hair. I wonder if they meant to name him Elmo, but accidentally chose Esau, and they just weren't familiar with what they were going to do. But anyways, he comes out covered in red hair, and right behind him, holding on to his heel, is Jacob, grasping the heel of Esau, the younger brother, grasping the heel of the older. Now again, patriarchal society, so in that society, the firstborn, Esau, has lots of rights and responsibilities to care for his family. Uh, when his father would die, if his mother was still alive, he would be responsible to provide for her and the rest of the household. And so as a part of that, the oldest would get the lion's share of the inheritance and the lion's share of the blessing of the father. And this was Esau's responsibility. And so these guys grow up, these two boys grow up living in their parents' home. And they get to be in their late 20s, early 30s. They're, they're about my age, early 30s, still living at home with their mom and dad. And you should know, that should indicate, there's going to be problems, right? There's going to be problems. You're 30-some years old, you're living at home with your mom and dad. Well, Esau has grown and matured into this manly man. He is a celebrated hunter. He is the captain of the football team. He is a burly, macho guy. His beard came in when he was 12. He is just, you know, Esau. And he's a daddy's boy. His dad loves him. Isaac loves him. He is so proud of his boy, Esau. And then there's Jacob. And Jacob is quite the opposite. Jacob likes to stay home and watch Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals with his mom. He's not a hunter. He's not a bro. He's not macho. Like me, he couldn't grow a beard if his life depended on it. He is just a mama's boy. And he's tricky like his mama too. And one day, his mom hears Isaac, their dad, who's on his deathbed, Tell Esau, I am about to die. Before I go, boy, I have one more request. I'm going to give you my blessing, Esau. But before I go, would you go get me some fresh deer and make me some venison stew? I love that stuff. It's so delicious. I want to taste it one last time. Go get it for me, and then I'll pronounce my blessing over you. Now, uh, Jacob and Esau's mother, who loves Jacob more, overhears this statement. And she wants Jacob to get the blessing. And so she whips up this plan. She calls Jacob in and she says, I'm going to make some stew for your daddy. 
I want you to go in. Your dad, you know, he's going blind, so he's not going to know it's you. He's not going to be able to see you very well. I want you to go in and give him this stew so that your daddy will give you the blessing instead of Esau. And Jacob is a little worried, but he would like to have that blessing. He says to his mommy, he says, well, mommy, again, remember, 30 years old here, mommy, I'm not hairy like Esau is. Dad's going to figure me out. Instead of blessing me, dad's going to curse me. And here's what his mom says. Let the curse fall on me. What a bold statement. I mean, they are planning and plotting sin and just downright saying, let that curse fall on me. I mean, we could go for weeks here, guys. I love this stuff. I'm, I'm skipping over so much here in this story. So they improvise and they cover Jacob's arms, his forearms, and his neck with goat hair. Skins of a goat they put, she puts on him. So she makes him, you know, these goat clothes and she sends him in with a bowl of stew. And in goes Jacob to see his daddy and he says, hey dad, <coughs> hey dad, I brought you this stew so I could get my blessing. <coughs> now, Isaac suspects something is going on here. The stew doesn't taste quite right. Esau's voice was kind of choppy right there. What was going on? Boy, are you catching a cold? No, Dad, uh, this is Esau. Come here, boy, Isaac says, and let me feel your arms so I can know that it really is you, Esau. And he rubs his hands on Jacob's arms and he feels the hair of the goatskin. And he says, it is my boy, my hairy boy Esau. I'm so proud of you. I've got a blessing for you. And he sets off to give this beautiful blessing about how God was going to do something amazing for his boy. God was going to bless him and multiply him and give him so much. And it's this beautiful blessing that he lays on Joseph. And I, on Joseph, on Jacob, oh goodness. And I have to imagine that Jacob comes out of his dad's tent just like, whoo, I got it, this happened, this happened. A little while later, Esau comes in, having killed the deer, making the stew, bringing it in for his dad. And he comes in and he says, Dad, I'm ready for my blessing. At that moment, Isaac realizes he's been deceived. And Isaac says, Esau, I've already given the blessing. I gave it to your brother Jacob. This is incredible in the story. This burly, manly man completely breaks down. He begins to weep bitterly, the scripture says. Weeping bitterly, don't you have something for me, dad? Uh, Isaac begins to give a blessing, but it's not the blessing that the firstborn would have had. And Esau leaves the tent, bitterly crying, making a vow to himself that as soon as his dad dies, he is going to kill his brother Jacob. I'll let him live because I don't want to hurt my dad. So I'll let Jacob live until my dad dies and then I'm going to completely destroy him. Has Jacob sinned against Esau? Yes. He stole the blessing. He plotted and did all these things. 
Has Esau sinned against Jacob? Yes, he's plotting murder. Jacob sins, and Esau's response is to plot another sin. Is this a relationship that is working towards reconciliation? No, it is not. Isaac realizes, again, via his mommy, I got to get out of Dodge. And he sets off and is gone for 20 years. For 20 years, he gets married. He is blessed, just as the blessing his father pronounced. He has children. He has possessions. But things start to get rough where he is. And God directs him to go back to his hometown, back to where Esau lives. And Jacob is no dummy. <laughs> this is, doesn't sound great. This sounds rather terrifying to head back to where my brother who wants to murder me is. And yet he seeks to follow what God is directing him to do. And he heads back towards his brother Esau. And he has the wise idea to send some scouts ahead of him with a message. Your brother Jacob is returning. He'd like to find favor in your eyes, O Esau. So he sends these scouts out. They make it there. They deliver the message and come running back to Jacob. And the message they give back to Jacob is, Jacob, we saw your brother Esau. We gave him the message. And he got up out of his chair and called 400 soldiers to come meet you on the road. <laughs> what do you think is happening here? How would you be if you were Jacob in this moment? Jacob is taking an enormous risk. God is directing him to go back and be reconciled with his brother. And you know, as well as I do, that reconciliation doesn't always work. How many of you have tried to reconcile with someone? Maybe your parent, maybe a sibling, maybe a friend or a boss or a coworker, maybe your spouse. You've tried, but that, that desire to be reconciled has not been received. Reconciliation doesn't always work. We're going to talk about it, and I want you to model it in your life, but it may not always work. But that's not an excuse not to try. Remember what Paul says. Make every... Oh, guys, I'm losing you. Make every effort to live at peace as far as it is possible with you. It's not an excuse not to try. So these 400 men in Esau are coming out of the land to come meet Jacob on the road. And this is not good. And Jacob does everything he can to prepare. He keeps sending more servants ahead with gifts, sheep, cattle, all kinds of things to meet Esau on the road. And then he splits up what he has left into different groups so that if he does get attacked by his brother, at least he doesn't lose everything. You know, he might only lose half his stuff instead of everything. And then the fateful day finally comes when the two groups finally meet each other on the path. And that's in Genesis chapter 33. Would you read with me beginning with verse 1? Then Jacob looked up and saw Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and his two servant wives. He put the servant wives and their children at the front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph last. Then Jacob went on ahead. As he approached his brother, he bowed to the ground seven times before him. All right. So he's protecting his family. 
He's being sure to set up his least favorite kids in the front and his most favorite kid at the end. I mean, he's really hedging everything he can. And he's going out towards Esau in a mode of humility. He's bowing multiple times as he comes towards his brother. This was an act that was reserved for royalty. Great humility being expressed here. It's a way of repenting on his knees. Esau, I sinned against you, and here I am, humbly acknowledging my sin, confessing my sin, seeking your forgiveness. I want to be reconciled. Humility and sincere repentance is incredibly disarming. I don't think it happens often, but let's check and see. How many of you have been totally disarmed by someone who sincerely and humbly came to you and repented? They walked up to you and they said, or you said, oh boy, here we go again. Here comes this person. But they came up to you and they said, I was wrong. I have no excuse. I was wrong. And I sinned against you. My attitude was bad. My motives were bad. There's no excuse for it. I don't want to justify myself. What I want to do and what I need to do is earn your trust back and make this up to you. Anybody ever had that happen before? Someone's come to you and done that? It doesn't happen much. But it's incredibly disarming. It's incredibly disarming. Jacob demonstrates humility. And some of you, your friends, have, you, you've sinned grievously against one another. And you're not the victim. You're the criminal. And you're the person who said things. You've gossiped. You've sinned. You've stolen. You've cheated. You lied. You were wrong. And until you're humble enough to look that person in the eye without defending yourself, without justifying yourself, without arguing for why you are, you know, you're not quite at fault here, but simply agreeing with God that what you did was wrong, that's the way you seek reconciliation. You'll have a hard time being a person that can be reconciled to other people until you humbly seek repentance. If your goal is to look good and justify yourself for your own wrongs, you're going to end up being a very lonely person. If your goal is to repent and be honest, you'll have some enduring relationships. I'll tell you what's so hard about this for some of us. Some of you have a great sin that the other person in your life doesn't even know about. And you're so worried about looking good instead of being good that you haven't told them. And that sin is separating you. And whether or not the two parties are even aware of the sin, it still ruins the relationship because one person who knows about it acts differently and feels a distance. And to confess that sin takes real humility. To confess your sin to another person, especially one that they don't even know about, takes extreme humility because... You'll destroy your own appearance in their eyes, but in doing so, you are working for the benefit of the relationship, not for your appearance. And Jacob is demonstrating this humility by bowing humbly seven times before his brother Esau. And what happens next is so incredible. This is the gasp-worthy moment, and I can't hardly understand it. Here it comes, the beautiful moment. Read it with me. Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they both wept. This is the moment in, the, in, this, in this story where we all should gasp. Things like this just don't happen. They are reconciled. When it does work, when it does happen, it is so worth it. Some of you have waited many years 
for certain friendships or business partners or family relationships to be reconciled and restored. Some of you will never see some of the most painful relationships in your life reconciled. And for today's sermon to be of any applicable value, you need to get it out of the realm of theology and you need to identify that person or those people in your life who are the most grievous relationships, the most troubling, the most regrettable. The people that you would pick up the phone because you used to call them, but now you don't call them because you're not on speaking terms anymore. The person that you were going to email and then realized, I shouldn't email them because they don't want to hear from me. I can't pretend like everything is good because it's not good. And the people that when you're brushing your teeth and you're driving in your car and you're at the grocery store and your mind starts to wander, you think about those people. Those are the relationships that God is spurring you by His Spirit to say, go and be reconciled. When those kinds of relationships are restored and reconciliation is brought, it is worth all the effort that it takes to make it happen. And I can't promise you that it's all going to work out. I can't promise you that all relationships will be met with humble repentance and reconciliation. But in the story of Jacob and Esau, what I can give you is a glimpse of hope and maybe that hope can be enough to keep you going. These brothers that were separated for over 20 years, and this is their reconciling moment. Have you ever had a moment like this where someone you cared about who had been so distant embraces you and you become close again? Hang with me, guys. I know. This is the first time. Oh, let's read scripture. Here we go. <laughs> Esau, there we are. You guys are so pros. Then Esau looked at the women and children and asked, Who are these people who are with you? These are the children God has graciously given to me, your servant, Jacob replied. Then the servant wives came forward with their children and bowed before him. Next came Leah with her children, and they bowed before him. Finally, Joseph and Rachel came forward and bowed before him. This is the first time that these kids get to meet Uncle Esau. It's been so bad that both of these men have become fathers and they've not introduced their families to one another, their children, their wives. Jacob's children have not even met their grandparents. And this is how destroyed this family was. And now they finally get to meet Uncle Esau and that's worth it. And it's worth the risk and it's worth the effort and it's worth the time. Read on with me. And what were all the flocks and herds I met as I came, Esau asked. Jacob replied, they are a gift, my lord, to ensure your friendship. My brother, I have plenty, Esau answered. Keep what you have for yourself. So what were these sheep and, go and goats and cattle that were coming up the road to meet Esau? What were they? They were a good strategy from Jacob. But more important than that, when it comes to reconciliation, there's another R word that comes along with it, a word we don't use much. It's called restitution. Restitution. To make restitution means I am saying I did something that took something from you. Now I'm going to seek to pay that back to you. I stole from you, my brother, and now I am seeking to pay that back. The point is this. If your relationship is strained because you stole money, make restitution. If your relationship with your boss is strained, is strained because you were billing hours that you didn't work, go make restitution. If you borrowed your friend's car and you wrecked it, and you brought it back and said, yeah, my bad, <laughs> make restitution. Make restitution. If you had a circle of friends that you ran with and you gossiped about and you lied about, 
Go to those friends and tell the truth. Make restitution. Don't just look good. Be good. Go repent. Make restitution. Lots of people want forgiveness, but not a lot of people want to fix the mess that they made. And some of you have had secrets that you've lied about for years, and certain people that you know you've lied to or you know you've stolen from, and you've denied it, and you've done something, and you need to make restitution. And Jacob's giving of gifts as an effort of this restitution. That's what this example is. I've stolen from you, my brother, and I'm seeking to pay you back. Now read on, verse 10. But Jacob insisted, No, if I have found favor with you, please accept this gift from me. And what a relief to see your friendly smile. It is like seeing the face of God. Please, take this gift I have brought you, for God has been very gracious to me. I have more than enough. And because Jacob insisted, Esau finally accepted the gift. Here's another thing that can happen. We like to be polite with one another. If you've wronged somebody and you need to make restitution, they may say, no, no, it's okay. That's all in the past. Jacob didn't say it's all in the past. Jacob was saying, no, this is my responsibility. And if you are seeking repentance and restitution, it's your responsibility to push. Not in a bad way, but in a good way. No, brother, I stole from you. No, I lied to you. No, I sinned against you. And this is my taking responsibility for that. I want to fix that. I need to go back to the people that I said those things to, that I took those things from, and I need to give back to them. And they may say, I forgive you, I forgive you. But you say, I understand that you forgive me, and I appreciate that. But as a believer, I need to make restitution. I need to make it right. This is my way of proving my repentance. There's so much more to this story. Guys, we could go on forever, and I have to break it off here. Reconciliation with each other is a reflection of the kingdom of God, though. And the reason why the story of Jacob and Esau is so glorious is because ultimately what it shows us is the future work and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Look at this, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 and 19. Read it with me. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. Here's the point. God is perfect, holy, and good, and we are imperfect, sinful, and bad. But God desires reconciliation. Think about this. In your relationship between you and God, who is the victim in our relationship with God? God is the victim. God is the victim. He's the one who's been wrong. He's the one we've sinned against. And here's what I love. It should be us approaching God and saying, God, I need to reconcile. I have to make this right with you. But God, the victim, was reconciling the world to himself through Christ. The victim was the one seeking the repentance. Think about this. God is taking action, not just saying, I forgive them, but coming to us and showing it to us. We've said, well, I forgive them, but we've never gone to that person to talk with them and let them know, guess what? They're... All right. I'm... So you've wronged or you've been wronged. I just got we got to move on. I'm too excited. I can go on for eons. And, oh boy. All right, you guys forgive me. You love me, right? Here we go. Who, 
uh, you've been wronged or you've wronged somebody. You are the perpetrator or you are the victim. Who is responsible for reconciliation? If you've been sinned against or you have sinned against somebody, who is responsible to be reconciled? There was a weird time in the local church and I knew there were some people who were upset with me. I didn't know why, but I could tell by their attitudes and their withdrawal that they were upset. And I was all self-justified. I was saying to myself, they've got a problem. They can follow the Matthew chapter 18 model. They can come to me. They can talk with me about it and point out my sin against them, which I have not committed. And I will tell them why they are wrong, and it'll all be okay. And in my thinking, I hadn't done anything wrong. And so there was nothing that I needed to do. If they had a problem, they could come point it out to me. Then the Lord hit me with a punch to the gut. You see, I had been claiming this Matthew chapter 18 statement about go to your brother and be reconciled. If you've got something against your brother, let them come to me and let them be, let them seek that. And we'll just prove how wrong they are. And I had justified myself over and over again. In the season of Lent, those 40 days before Easter, our church was reading through the New Testament. And that started with the book of Matthew. And I was eagerly awaiting Matthew chapter 18. when Once again, I could re-justify myself to say, I'm good here. They're in the wrong. But you know what comes before Matthew chapter 18? Matthew chapter 5. And in Matthew chapter 5, God just gives me this punch to the gut. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. What Jesus is saying here is, I would rather you go be reconciled with the person who there is a void of sin between than for you to come to church. I'd rather for you to go be reconciled than for you to give your tithe and offering and support your local church. Wow! Incredible! That is the act of worship, to go and be reconciled to them. And so I had to call them because the Lord prompted my spirit. I could no longer remain silent on this. And I had to say, brother, I need to come visit because I'm sensing that there's something going on. There's a void between us and we need to talk about it. And I did it. And it was painful. There's nothing fun about it. That's the bad thing about this message today. There's nothing fun about it. It was painful. And I don't know that we came away fully reconciled. But I went in with humility and let the Lord work on my heart to say, what have I done against you? I want to know so that we can be reconciled. I want to own my responsibility in this. Reconciliation. The answer to the question is reconciliation. Whether you are the offender or the offended, reconciliation starts with me. Whether you need to forgive or you need to repent, both of you have the ability to start the process. I'm thankful for the Lord's leading. I'm not considering it coincidence that in praying and leading up to this one weird Sunday between now and Advent, that God would be speaking to my heart about this and that God would be speaking to Bernie's heart about this. 
This isn't coincidence. What it is, is God saying, some of us need to be seeking reconciliation. There's a void of sin between you and someone else. You may be the offender. You may be the offendee. Let's cross that void. Considering the sake of time, may I pray a blessing over you and use that as our benediction. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you're not random. I thank you that this isn't all just coincidence. I think you have something that you're wanting to tell us today. Search our hearts and know us. As the psalmist David said, point out our iniquities. God, some of us here are in a broken relationship with someone, and we need to go and repent, or we need to extend forgiveness, and we need to seek reconciliation, and it is a scary process. We may feel just like Jacob, who's staring at an angry brother with 400 soldiers coming our way. It's daunting, but that doesn't give us an excuse not to do it. So God, I pray that you would grab our hearts and not release them until we have done what we need to do. God, if there are men or women, young people or old here today, who have been harboring some sin between them, saying, time will heal all wounds, if I just don't say anything, if I, if I say, you know, I forgive them in my heart, but I don't need to talk to them about it. That's not done. The job's not completed. God, grab our hearts and don't let us go. Bring these things to mind. Give us a sleepless night. What a weird blessing to pray. Keep us up all night until we decide, I will seek reconciliation. Heal our hearts and thank you for Jesus Christ who even though you were the offended, you extended that grace to us. What a beautiful thing. And it's in his wonderful name that we pray. Amen. Amen.